Okay, welcome to uh, Journey Through Scripture, day 237. Today we're going to be in 2 Chronicles 29 and 30 and 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 24. Okay, so in our reading from 2 Chronicles today, we learn about the reign of Hezekiah. Now, of course, Hezekiah has a big role to play um, in the history of Judah, and uh, we certainly read about his reign um, in 2 Kings chapter 18 in and around there, and um, he is evaluated there as an exceedingly good king, um, you know, one of the one of the major uh, positive kingships that we see in, in Judah. Aside from David, it might be, depending on how you're ranking them, might be second only to Josiah's reign. And um, Chronicles definitely concurs with this, uh, but also gives us a lot more uh, details about his religious reforms, and not surprisingly, um, as it relates to priests and Levites. So it, when he- when Hezekiah takes the throne in Second uh, Kings eighteen, you immediately learn about his reforms regarding like what he eliminated: the high places, the pillars, the Asherah, the bronze serpent that was being worshipped um, and called Nehushtan, and um, here, uh, we get a lot, uh, of other stuff. And so it begins in the very first year of his reign, which would have been, uh, about 716 BC. And he opens the door of the house of Yahweh and, um, the doors and repairs them. And, um, you might recall during Ahaz's reign, his father, in chapter 28, verse 24, it said he shut the house of the of, of Yahweh. So he closes shop in Jerusalem and instead puts altars, it says, in, in every corner of Jerusalem. And um, so, so Hezekiah immediately reversing what his father had done, and um, he brings the priests and the Levites into the square and commands that they consecrate themselves and also consecrate the house of Yahweh. Um, it has been defiled by the people's sins and by all kinds of deviant practices, so they need to carry out the filth from the holy place. So think about it, that wording there in verse 5. Uh, because their fathers have been unfaithful, doing evil what is, uh, what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, and turning their faces from their habitation, from the, from the Lord's habitation, uh, turning their backs on him. They've shut the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, not burned incense, um, or offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. And so, uh, not surprisingly, we have seen outpourings of God's wrath in various ways, and we've read about those in the last few days, to the extent where, um, where the kingdom has now become an object of horror, astonishment, and hissing. Um, and so, um, it's talked about how our fathers have fallen by the sword, how our sons, daughters, and wives ha- are in captivity already, and that, of course, refers to a bunch of things. So, number one, we saw that during Ahaz's reign, um, the the king of Damascus, Rezin, and the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, Pekah, both attacked Judah, and uh, Rezin had 
brought um, uh, numerous captives back to Damascus with him, chapter 28, verses 5 and 7. And then Israel attempted to do that, but remember, they were thwarted by the prophet Odaid, as well as a bunch of very prominent people of Israel who um, listened to reason and sent the people back to Jericho. Uh, so people have come gone into captivity, but even more than that, if you think of the date, right? Hezekiah comes to the throne in 716. What happened six years earlier? The, the northern kingdom has been destroyed by the Assyrians. Um, and so he wants to make a, or renew the covenant with Yahweh um, that his anger may turn away from us. And so basically gives this uh, the Levites uh, and the priests a a pep speech in order to do this. And so they rise up and the leaders among them are named. They gather their brothers, they consecrate themselves. Um, and then they start cleansing the house of Yahweh. They do the inner temple first, and that takes eight days. And they, they carry out all of the detestable objects and all the uncleanness, it says, um, to the brook Kidron, where it's, it's disposed of. And um, and then they do the same with the outer court, the the here called the vestibule in the English Standard Version, and they cleanse the whole house of Yahweh, the uh, burnt offering, the utensils, the tables, like anything that's in the temple has to be cleansed, has to be purified, and uh, and um, they also um, make sure there's all the vessels given that Ahaz had discarded a lot of them, and even yesterday we said we saw he had cut a lot of them in pieces, is the wording it uses, and um, and so they present these uh, these consecrated utensils before the altar of the Lord. And then Hezekiah rises early, right? It's a, verse 20 tells us he, he gets up early in the morning and gathers the officials, so, you know, he's wasting no time, and... Um, and they bring all these animals, uh, these, these, these initial sacrifices there, uh, seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats. Um, and the goats are the one, I, I think what's going on here is I think um, the bulls, rams, and lambs are all burnt offerings, and the male goats are sin offerings. Um, and um, they're the only ones, notice the, the wording of the verse attaches for a sin offering to the goats. Um, and indeed, um, given that these are leaders of who who are who are the the in Judah who are part of this assembly, it says that um, in in verse twenty three that the king and the assembly, which again is a, a composed of officials, laid their hands on the goats. And indeed, if you read Leviticus, the kind of uh, animal that is offered for a sin offering for leaders among the people are goats. Priests get bulls congregation uh, member uh, the congregation gets a bull from the herd and um and common people get female goats or lambs but these are male goats so it seems that that's what's going on there you've got burnt offerings and you've got sin offerings and um uh, and then uh, they are they are made their blood is thrown against the altar as is prescribed uh and then not surprisingly because this is chronicles the music gets going so the, the, the Levites are playing cymbals, harps, lyres, according to the commandment of David and Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet, and um, they all stand making um, all this music and praise to the Lord as um, burnt offerings are also being made. Um, 
and um, and the, the songs that they sing in verse 30, interestingly, says that they're singing praises to Yahweh with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And remember that uh, those are, uh, there's many psalms with superscriptions, of course, to David, and there's a bunch of psalms of Asaph as well. So while we can't know for sure, I think it, it kind of sounds as if that's what's, what's uh, these are some of the psalms that are being sung here. Uh, by the people, and and there, this is portrayed as a time of great gladness, where the people are bowing down and worshiping. And then um, <clears throat> Hezekiah says, uh, "You have now consecrated yourselves to Yahweh. Come near, bring sacrifices. So more sacrifices. So the so the the, the individuals, the Levites, whom he initially has, had called near, have have consecrated themselves. So bring sacrifices and thank offerings. Thank offerings, if you recall, are a kind of peace offering um, of all who are of a willing heart. So now it's going to be free will offerings that are being brought." And uh, we're given these incredible numbers, and I'm not exactly sure how they fit together. Um, so like uh, 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 20 lambs are called burnt offerings. And then you've got what are called consecrated offerings, 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. Um, so could that be uh, additional peace offerings or perhaps consecration offerings for additional priests being consecrated? Or is it that the that the, the total number of bulls and sheep that are offered are this, this 600 and 300, and then the 70, 100, and 200 numbers are just um, out of those, how many are used for burnt offerings. It's not clear to me how those numbers relate to each other, but there certainly is a lot. And the point here is that the priests who are consecrated and available to do this, like, they, they um, you know, they, they, a number of them get ready to, 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 to do all this stuff, but they underestimate how many that they'll need and how and and how soon they're going to need them, and so um, the the in other words, like the zeal to worship the Lord and to offer Him sacrifices outstrips the available number of priests. Um, so, like they're not available, it says to flay all the burnt offerings, um, and they they need other priests to consecrate themselves, and that's a process that takes seven days. So in the absence of in the absence of um, full sons of Aaron, it says that the Levites helped them, um, and because the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. Um, Chronicles again, of course, is a book that is a big fan of the Levites, and so yeah, so they're they're offering the Levites are helping uh, do all this and uh, restore the worship of of the Lord to the temple. And uh, Hezekiah and all the people rejoice greatly. And it says in verse 36, because this thing came about suddenly. And because it's it's so spontaneous, notice that he opened the doors of the temple in the first month. So this is kind of like a and and they're just like, you know, you know, they're no they're not waiting. They realize what has been going on is wrong and it needs to be fixed immediately. And they do that but then they really want to keep a Passover, right? But the 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 cleansing of the temple itself, uh, so the Passover is supposed to be happening like um, uh, on, on the 14th day of the first month, but it takes them eight days to even cleanse the temple to get it ready for sacrifice. Um, so, you know, they're in this religious reform thing and they just like totally miss the Passover. And so what they do is they keep it on the, at the second month, 
It says they could not keep it at, at that time, um, at, the, at the right time, because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem, right? You need commoners, it's a, it's a pilgrimage feast, and so you need commoners to come. And so um, they decide to do this unique Passover in the second month, and um, Solomon, uh, Solomon, Hezekiah makes this proclamation not only throughout Judah, but all throughout Israel, from Beersheba to Dan. Notice it's normally Dan to Beersheba, but here, since we're coming from the perspective of the south, it's the southern city that's mentioned first, that all the people should come to the Passover uh, of Yahweh. And so he sends couriers throughout all Israel and Judah. And remember, the northern kingdom has already fallen by this time. And um, so he's talking very much to to whomever remains in the land. And what we have here is the beginning of this ideology that eventually gets crusty and hardened and forms into a Jewish opinion about Samaritans that we see in Jesus's day, because those the, the inhabitants of the northern kingdom are what will eventually become uh, the people known as the Samaritans. And so... <clears throat> um, uh, the couriers send this message, O people of Israel, return to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Notice, not Jacob, Israel. He wants the, to include them, so he uses that name of Jacob. That he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. I think it's also worth noting here that uh, it, it really does kind of give you an idea of the limited perspective of Chronicles, like very much as I've been saying, the story the Chronicler wants to tell, that he doesn't, he didn't even tell us about the downfall of the Northern Kingdom. He knows his audience, knows all about it, and um, the focus here very much is on Jerusalem and Judah. Um, so he tells them, don't be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to Yahweh their God so that he made them a desolation. Don't be stick stiff-necked like them, but yield yourselves to Yahweh. Come to his sanctuary, which has been con- which has been consecrated forever, and serve Yahweh your God that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to Yahweh, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land." Um, this is a message, of course, historically, which is sent to the northern kingdom, but as we've been noting, um, consider how these words would have sounded to post-exilic returnees from exile, um, many of whom had brothers still in Babylon. Um, and um, uh, the, the reason they can count on God uh, being faithful to this if they turn is that um, he is gracious and merciful. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him, which is basically exactly what Solomon prayed in his prayer in chapter 6, verses 36 through 39, where if my people sin, right, from the land of their captivity, they can pray towards this house and he will heal them. So he sends these these, uh, couriers with this message from city, city to city, um, throughout the northern kingdom, but the people laugh at them, and and they scorn and mock them. And only, um, uh, not not all of them, there are some men, we're told, of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun, who humble themselves and come to Jerusalem, but by and large, um, you know, the, there, is, there is scorn, and probably for a variety of reasons, you know, the general idolatry in the northern kingdom, um, but, you know, um, perhaps a hopelessness, 
you know, the Lord's already judged us. Are you kidding? Or, um, you know, not not e- this this doubt that may have arisen based on the fact that they're just completely dominated by these this uh, world empire now the, these these Assyrians. So, like, you really think the Lord is is powerful enough to withstand withstand Assyria, um, and probably a bunch of other reasons why people respond to God like that. But as for Judah, verse twelve tells us, and notice how um, you know, remember in First Corinthians. Uh, where we saw the natural man does not accept the things of God, um, for, but but rather the the one uh, in whose heart the Spirit has worked, right? That that the Spirit has given uh, wisdom and understanding to. Um, and here, note how you kind of have an Old Testament type version of that, um, where it says the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of Yahweh. So it's 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 a spirit empowered positive response to God that they have that it is owing to to the Lord's hand that this repentance is even coming about in the first place. So the people come together in Jerusalem to keep the Passover here called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Of course, that's the feast that kind of surrounds the Passover uh, in the second month. This unique Passover and. Um, and they so they're they're removing all of these false altars in Jerusalem, and continue throwing them into the great altar dumpster in the uh, Brook Kidron, the, the the Kidron Valley, and they slaughter the Passover lamb. And it says that the priests and the Levites are ashamed, so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of Yahweh. Now the the text doesn't explicitly say exactly what they're ashamed of, but it does seem that they're um, um, uh, that that perhaps what we're told next is the explanation here, and, and that would have to do with the fact that they've got all these people coming who have not properly consecrated themselves. So they're kind of um, they're kind of able to do it, and they're kind of not. Like you've you've got this big reformed movement, reform movement, and. The Levites should have been the ones making sure that the people understood the the purity laws and everything. What made people worthy to um, to keep the Passover or ritually clean enough to to keep the Passover? But now you've got all these people showing up, and so notice how it says that the priests threw blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. Now, uh, first of all, if we're talking about burnt offerings. In the prescription for burnt offering in Leviticus, it is actually the worshiper who kills the animal, and then the priest takes care of it. So the worshipers are not themselves clean and cannot take place in that part of the ritual. And um, <clears throat> and so the, the Levites have to do that part. And also the Levites have to slaughter the Passover lamb for everybody who's not clean. Again, this was a task that was typically left to the worshiper, this part of it but because the Levites were, were clean and the people were not. And so I think perhaps the shame of them has to do with the fact that they are they have not properly instructed and properly prepared the people because they're just overwhelmed by the numbers. There's not enough of them. There's not enough of them who perhaps perhaps there's they're, they're still needing to consecrate certain priests because you got to think they're offering all these sacrifices. Well, sacrifices also have to be made to consecrate priests. So it's just the religious zeal is like outstripping their preparation for it. And now an interesting parallel um, to this um, that might, might be hard to recall 
is from Numbers chapter 9, where people who are unclean from contact with a dead body come to Moses wanting to keep the Passover but being unclean. And the prescription when the Lord, when, when Moses inquires of the Lord, the prescription for them that is given is that they should keep it in the second month. And so uh, that's probably like another connection here. You have a second month Passover, a bunch of people who are not clean um, uh, doing it, but apparently the idea in numbers is that they're unclean in the first month, so they'll be clean by the second month. Here, it's a little bit different, where the Passover isn't called until the second month, and they're still not clean, and so they need the assistance of the Levites to do this, and the Levites are just overwhelmed. Like, it's a joyful thing, it's great um, that the people are repenting and turning to the Lord, but on the other hand, um, it's it presents quite the challenge for the Levites. And, uh, yeah, so... <clears throat> um, uh, the, 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 they keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, and the priests con- and the Levites continue praising the Lord, singing with all their might to him. And, um, and, and it goes—it's it's going so well that they actually keep the feast for an extra seven days with gladness, um, that at, at which point uh, the king as well as the princes contribute bulls and sheep for continual offerings— um, and the, the the priests are 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 continuing to be consecrated. Remember, I said there's they're, they're still not done consecrating themselves by then, and there's just great despite the mayhem, there is great joy in Jerusalem, and uh, there had not been such joy in Jerusalem. It says since the time of Solomon, um, and since da- since David, and the, the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people. Their voice was heard, and their pray- prayer came to the Lord's holy habitation in heaven, which is, again, think about how in line with the theology of Solomon's prayer, that is, that heaven is God's dwelling place. But, you know, there is a sense in which he also dwells here on earth in this this house that is called by his name. All right, let's uh, go to 1 Corinthians. We're going to finish it up today, verses 16, 5 through 24. So these are this is kind of like Paul's farewell in his letters. We saw Romans had one of these too. It's it's pretty typical of Paul's letters to have this, and so he um, he tells them that. Uh, so so it's clear here that he's writing from the book of Ephesus, right? Look at verse eight. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, and then his plans are to come um, up to Macedonia and then travel south. Um, until he reaches Corinth in Achaia. So he's like, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, and um, perhaps I'll stay there for the winter uh, so that you can help me on my journey. Um, Sounds kind of Romans-y, doesn't it, right? Like uh, he's he's got other plans and he wants them to partner in his ministry. Um, For I don't want to just see you in passing, right? I want to stay there for some time. I I, want to continue to forge this relationship, especially since there's some ways, definitely, as we've seen, that the church at Corinth isn't doing so well. So he's going to to stay in Ephesus, and um, and it tells them about the wide door for effective work that is open there to him, and there are many adversaries. Think about how much that lines up with uh, Paul's experience in Ephesus in the book of Acts, right? That, that um, eventually, like, the city really does, like, this is where they're burning all their magical books and stuff like that, and things do get tough for him in Ephesus, but that actually hasn't happened yet. Um, but, 
you know, he is aware of the of the adversaries that will eventually cause a lot of trouble for him and possibly throw him in prison there as well. So um, he tells them that Timothy first is going to be coming to him, and so he's doing the work of the Lord, so put him at ease. Um, let no one despise him. Help him on his way that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. So he knows that Timothy is on his way there and wants them to, uh, you know, to welcome him. Um, then he starts, uh, he talks a little bit about Apollos. Remember, the, uh, uh, Paul planted Apollos watered, right? Like, uh, obviously, a worker who had been there. We were told about Apollos uh, in the book of Acts, coming to Corinth and doing ministry there. And um, he tells him, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. So, um, you know, this... Which is interesting, right? Because you've got these Paul and Apollos factions there, and Paul's like, "Well, he's with me, and we're doing our work together." And so um, I'm sending this message from him. He'll get to you as he'll he'll come to your city when 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 the Lord wills, when he gets a chance, right? The kind of showing the unity between him and uh, and Apollos. He tells them, "Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong." Let all that you do be done in love. So a couple things here. I notice the watchfulness, right? Like the alertness with in faith, right? Like faith is something that you have to give attention to. It's not something that you just passively grow in. And so this idea of like uh, watchfulness, this staying awake, um, uh, it, it, it's an important attitude to have towards our faith, a, a diligence in it, a standing firm, right? Like not uh, not being moved, um, in, in, with regard to the gospel and the, and the things that are truly important. He says, act like men, which is another way of saying be courageous. That's a way the you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the word is andridzomai, with, uh, right, um, andros or anir being uh, the word for male. But, you know, the, the idea here in the, in the uh, colloquial Greek of the time is that that means be courageous and be strong and notice it's be courageous, be strong, but also let all you do be done in love. Like that's what it means to truly uh, be strong and to truly be courageous, to truly act like a man, right? It's actually to be loving towards one another, to be self-sacrificial, to be giving. That's what, that's what true strength is. He says, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Um, we've, we've seen the household of Stephanus already mentioned. Note that in one, uh, first Corinthians, back in chapter 1, verse 16, he said that he had baptized. In fact, this is like pretty much the only people he remembers baptizing in Corinth. Um, so now he's talking about the household of Stephanus. Um, that they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So this this family, this group of people, are, are particularly exemplary Christians. And he tells them, be subject to such as these. These are good people um, you have among you as your example. Um, and, and, and anybody who is like them, uh, happily be subject to them. You know, follow their lead. Um, and... <clears throat> And he says, I rejoiced at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus. So these are guys whom the Corinthians had sent to them or perhaps had gone to them of their own accord. So I think, I think maybe a good way to put this together is, um, remember how he, he said in chapter 1, verse 11, 
that he's heard from Chloe's people that there are some divisions among you. So first of all, I think perhaps these might be members of the house church of Chloe, that is the household of Stephanus, composed of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus. And they came to Paul to report concerns that they have with what's going on at church or, or what this, this group has with what's going on at Corinth, and perhaps carrying some questions with them, some of which we've seen he answers in this letter. And uh, so he rejoiced when they came, and they've made up for your absence, okay? So, like, I'm here, and, and I feel, like, visited by all of you in that they've come as your delegates. Um, they've refreshed my spirit, uh, as well as yours, give recognition to such people. Um, so he, you know, these, these people who have come to him with this concerning news from Corinth, uh, Paul wants to indicate that they're, they're right in what they've done, and, and you should you should be subject to, to people as faithful as this. Then he tells them, the churches of Asia send you greetings. This would be, uh, you know, Ephesus, uh, Colossae is another uh, big Asian one that we read about in Scripture, but, you know, he's in Asia, so these churches send you greetings. They know about you. They pray for you. They love you. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Remember, Aquila and Prisca, Paul initially met them in, in Corinth, in Acts, in, in Acts chapter 18. Uh, and they're the ones who uh, afterwards equipped Apollos to be able to minister effectively in Corinth. And so the Corinthians well know Aquila and Priscilla, and uh, they, they, um, these two left with Paul when Paul was done um, at Corinth during his initial stay, and now he's with them, they are with him again in Ephesus, and they send him hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss. And he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Um, notice, or recall, when we looked at Romans, right, we saw Tertius, who is said to be the guy who, quote-unquote, wrote the letter. So that, I said then, is a guy called an amanuensis, right? Somebody to whom the writer dictates and sometimes is given some um, uh, some leeway as to, like, the wording and, and maybe some of the things that are said. Um, so it seems to be that Paul is, once again, using an amanuensis, someone to dictate this letter to. But here he grabs the quill, the, the writing utensil, and writes that greeting with his own hand. Um, you know, you can recognize my handwriting, so I, uh, you know, I, I write this with my own hand. Uh, and then he tells them, and and I and I think because of the solemnness of you know, it's it's kind of like his signature. But then notice the solemnness of what he's about to say. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And there is that word anathema. Okay. Um, uh, that is, let him come under the, the, the curse of God. Um, and notice how serious this is, right? Um, he used, Paul uses anathemas, let him be accursed, for things like no love for Jesus, uh, for things like preaching a different gospel. But unfortunately, I think throughout the church, history of the church, many, um, many Christians um, have anathematized others on much lesser grounds. This is, I think, an anathema is not something that should be thrown out um, willy nilly, and certainly not attached to stuff that we don't find in the Bible. For example, like anyone who doesn't kiss a beloved icon, let him be anathema. Um, the Second Council of Nicaea, that's in 
um, all kinds of stuff like that, even even holding to the doctrines of the Reformation, right? Like um, the, the Council of Trent anathematizes a bunch of of good and true and biblical doctrines, and it's just a shame how this has been used. But here it is connected with the love for the Lord. Um, and then he says, our Lord come, which is actually a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. And um, you've, you've probably heard the expression Maranatha, right? That's what this is, Maranatha. Um, interestingly, in one of the earliest church writings after the New Testament, it's called the Didache or the teaching, um, the, which... Um, uh, which is, you know, towards the end of the first century. In chapter 10, verse 6, this expression, Maranatha, seems to have been used um, in early church baptismal formulas as well. Our Lord, come. And then he tells them, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's how Paul ends this challenging and difficult letter to the Corinthians. I love you my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And uh, join me tomorrow for the sequel, where we will begin 2 Corinthians. All right, until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.